information that you receive on Exclusively Inclusive Podcast is designed to be a learning experience for patients and listeners in order to supplement their own information so they can be better equipped to be advocates in their own healthcare journey. The opinions expressed by Erin Everett are the opinions of her own and do not represent any third parties or separate entities. In addition, the specialists that present on the show are also here to supplement your own healthcare information and are not designed to replace any treatment plans or information you're receiving from your own healthcare specialists. We hope that you enjoy the show and continue to subscribe and listen in. I have taken on in the last few years the goal to become the first trans person to climb the seven summits, which is basically climbing to the highest point in every continent. So I, you know, I, I always loved travel and, uh, and adventure travel, and I always loved mountaineering, and these are things I thought worth would be threatened as I transitioned. So as time went on and I got more comfortable with my transition, I began the sports again and I began the travel again. And um, here I am climbing the highest point on every continent with the trans flag, just to say, I'm proud of who I am and uh, I stand wherever I can and say it. Welcome to Exclusively Inclusive, your source for the latest in LGBTQIA healthcare, transgender HRT, and personal empowerment. Here's your host, Erin Everett. Hey everybody, welcome back to Exclusively Inclusive. I'm your host, Erin Everett, nurse practitioner. On today's show, we'll be interviewing a very special guest, Erin Parisi. Erin was assigned male at birth and has undergone her female transition. She's an advocate for all trans people, but particularly athletes. During her transition, Erin was afraid that she would have to give up her passion and love of the outdoors. Not only did she continue to be driven, but she turned that fear into motivation and has now made it her mission to climb all the seven summits of the world in order to bring awareness to trans right and trans athletes. Erin founded the nonprofit organization Transcending. Through this, she has been able to continue her mission and gain success. Erin is here today to discuss some personal and intimate details of her transition and also further explain what Transcending is and why it is so, so important. Erin, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, Erin. My name is Erin Parisi. I am, uh, I use she, hers pronouns. I live in Colorado and enjoy the mountains. And basically, I came out as trans about five years ago. Awesome. So um, when you say you came out as trans, is that when you started your social or medical transition? That is a little bit of both. I was living pretty deeply in denial at the time. So I um, had uh, kind of built up a lot of my life on kind of that that denial of I was living at my office and my family life and everything else, basically my social life all um, as male, as pronounced male at birth. So we, um, you know, that's that's just the life that I tried to build around, unfortunately, no matter how many clues I had over the years. um, Right. I did it, it was never right. So five years ago, I announced um, to my ex-wife at the time that I, I couldn't necessarily continue the way I was going. I, I figured there was probably a lot of different ways I could begin a transition or um, manifest myself. But ultimately, my marriage didn't work out. And I began medical and social transition about the same time. Well, good for you. 
it's really hard. And I think your story is not unlike others as far as it, um, you know, deciding to live your truth. For a lot of people that I've interacted with, you know, it's something that they suppress and it gets to a point where they can't do that anymore. And unfortunately, as you stated, transition can come with a lot of sacrifices. But, you know, it's really brave and courageous for you to come out and live your truth. And I think, you know, a lot of people find your story inspirational. Thank you. Yeah, of course. How old were you when you first announced and decided to live your truth? I would say, I think I was in my late 30s. I was about 38. So, you know, I always kind of thought, you know, from the time I was in my teenage years, I was always like, it's too late to transition. But, um, you know, I I think I came out when I was ready, like a lot of other people. And that was um, when I was 38. Yeah, that's awesome. And that actually gives a lot of hope for a lot of people and a lot of patients that interact with who are often wondering, is it too late to live my truth? And no, it's never too late. So that is really cool. And so just to tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself outside of your transition, what kind of organizations are you a part of and what kind of things do you like to enjoy in your free time? Yeah, so I moved to Colorado from upstate New York uh, about 20 years ago um, with all intention to kind of disappear and transition, but also, you know, kind of get away from my family and create the space that I needed to transition. And that was in the late 90s. But I was also what what drew me to Colorado was that I'm an outdoor athlete, a mountain biker, a backcountry skier, and um, basically all things mountain and trail related are just kind of right in my um, my general wheelhouse. So I came to Colorado to again kind of restart socially, which took me still another 15 years. But I'm here in Colorado as an outdoor athlete. So yeah, that's right. That's where I spend my time. Excellent. What would you say is like one interesting fact or fun fact about you that maybe not everybody knows? Well, I have taken on in the last few years, the goal to become the first trans person to climb the seven summits, which is basically climbing to the highest point in every continent. So I, you know, I, I always loved travel and uh, and adventure travel, and I always loved mountaineering. And these are things I thought worth would be threatened as I transitioned. So as time went on and I got more comfortable with my transition, I began the sports again and I began the travel again. And um, here I am climbing the highest point on every continent with the trans flag, just to say, I'm proud of who I am and uh, I stand wherever I can and say it. That's amazing. I mean, I can't even imagine being able to do something like that, let alone with your story and your bravery to speak out your truth. So, so far, how many um, summits have you climbed? I climbed four um, in the 12-month period that ended actually today. I hit the summit of Aconcagua um, four years ago today, or I'm sorry, last year today. And um, in the 12 months leading up to that uh, climb up the highest point in South America to 23,000 feet, um, I climbed four of the world's um, seven summits. So we did Australia is where I started. I went to Kilimanjaro in Africa after that, then climbed in Russia on Mount Elbrus. And then um, last year, we finished the 12 months off with Aconcagua um, in Argentina. Wow, that is a lot of climbing in 12 months. That <laughs> and must, a lot of traveling. A lot of traveling, but that's that part's probably a lot of fun too. I mean, I'm sure the climbing is fun too, but a lot of hard work. How do you prepare for that? Yeah, you know, I mean, as far as 
as, as far as my life goes, I mean, preparing for it is, you know, it, it's actually the travel and the preparing that is, is what the things that that scared me the most in coming out. Um, I spend a lot of time in the gym. I spend a lot of time in the outdoors, which is um, the outdoors community seems often to be very hyper gendered. Mm. And th- those are the spaces that were scary to me. And then the travel aspect of it was also scary. Airports, bathrooms, sitting on planes for long periods of time next to strangers. Those things were definitely scary. And and all of that takes a different, different amount of preparation. So as far as physically, I think that's what you're getting at. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, in the, I'm in the gym or outdoors training Mm -hmm. six days typically six days a week i do a lot of high intensity interval training and i do um, a lot of outdoor like a lot of carrying a lot of weight and hiking uphill kind of stuff so wow that's super cool yeah i mean yeah physically of course preparation but you know i'm really glad that you highlighted all the other struggles that come along with it because i think a lot of people take you know that for granted when they're traveling about um things they don't have to think about like you mentioned airport bathrooms and encountering a very gendered world with the athletic stuff that you like to do you know i take care of a lot of people who are going through their transition and they're all at different stages but i definitely have a lot of um trans female athletes who often have the same concerns and worry about having to sacrifice their um athleticism or also just being discriminated against because they've been told that they're at a greater advantage than um, a cisgendered female, which, you know, reading about you and poking around online, I noticed that you made point to say that you've had your testosterone suppressed and that you've actually submitted documented evidence of that before. Is that something that you came up with on your own or that people made you do? Or, and do you have any advice for other people going through that? No, that's not something I was made to do. That's something that I took on myself for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. First off, I will say that I don't think that the gateway into sports should be kept based on all of these qualifications and everything else that mm-hmm. that are that people are coming up with it, it seems like you know everybody wants to come up with a rule to uh, police trans bodies in sports mm-hmm. and i think that and it, it all comes down to this this idea of unfair advantage and i mm-hmm. you know we can talk about competitive sports and leveling the playing field and making sure that everybody has a chance to play but I think that the benefits of sports should be open to everyone, mm-hmm. um, rega- regardless of their gender identification. So, you know, non-competitive sports and participation should be open. Mm-hmm. I think that I really wanted to show people what, ha- in my story, kind of what happens to my body and how I need to, to train and everything else, given the fact that I have been testosterone suppressed for several years now and that my body isn't you know, very different from how I was as an athlete before I transitioned. So mm-hmm. this was a way for me to say, you know, I, my body has changed and this is what I'm going through to become an athlete and, and kind of follow those guidelines. You know, the lessons of sports, I think, should be open to everyone universally. And I think it's important for our allies to see that there are avenues of inclusion that do level the playing field for competitive sports. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really valid point that by you, you know, submitting proof of that is not the necessarily your suggestion that this should be a requirement because you know there's a lot of cisgendered females with elevated levels of testosterone for other medical conditions and we're not checking those either so to your point it should just be open and i think that's probably the best solution but i really loved the fact that you went out there and said like listen this is me this is who i am this is what i'm up against and no i'm not at an unfair advantage 
Yeah, you know, some of the greatest athletes that I've wor- I work out with, going back 20 years, I mean, 15 years before my transition, are female athletes. They were better than me before. They're better than me now, and they oh, they, they are just more committed, more intense as athletes. Uh, you know, some of the mountain biking females, the rock climbing females, especially that I'm working working out and training with, absolutely phenomenal athletes. So to mm-hmm. say that you know that I have some advantage over them is ridiculous because mm-hmm. that it's it's detracting from cisgender female athletes to say that I somehow uh, am at an advantage. Now, also in my sport, everybody likes to point out, they say, well, you have muscle mass or bone mass. And it's like, well, nobody wants extra muscle mass or bone mass to carry up a very tall mountain very slowly. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't understand sometimes Mm -hmm. that the only two things people point back to as an advantage sometimes that I maybe have is that I have additional bone mass, which adds no strength to my body or or they say muscle mass, which is not productive. I don't think I've lost so much strength, but, Mm -hmm. um, all those factors make it harder for me to compete, not easier. Right. Absolutely. And actually, from a medical standpoint, once trans women start their transition and we start suppressing the testosterone, muscle mass decreases. And actually, over time, there's been some research to show through DEXA scans, which is images of the bone mineral density, the bone mineral density changes occur too. So, you know, both of those arguments might not even be valid for them either. So, right, you know. Right. I- <laughs> Yeah, but there's plenty more research to be done. But of course. I think that right now, 40 years after the Renee Richards case in, the, in courts where U.S. tennis basically said that an army of male athletes would show up and that that never happened. I mean, we don't have the we have plenty of evidence to show that trans women are not competing in sports and very little evidence to show that we we are. And every time somebody you know that is an athlete. Mm-hmm. shows up a, tra- a trans female athlete shows up everybody makes a big deal out of it it's like mm-hmm. no you know the, the lessons that we're learning and the amount of people who are learning these lessons are far greater than yes the the few people that over the decades we've been competing have actually won i mean a handful have won and it's a big deal every time right um, from the from those that attack us so. right yeah absolutely i couldn't agree more And so from that, too, when we're talking about like your transition and being an athlete and things like that, what when you decided to medically and socially transition, what kind of steps did you take first to also begin the transition, but ensure that you were able to participate in the things that you enjoyed doing? Well, I don't think that I took steps to ensure that. I could still enjoy the things that I enjoyed doing. I've, I've fully made the choice to transition, understanding that I would probably have to sacrifice many of those things because of the communities and kind of the bullies that, that, that gatekeep and, and keep trans people out of those places. I made the decision to transition, understanding that there would be sacrifices. When I did that, um, I had already been in uh, therapy for, you know, on and off for 20 or 25 years. I mean, since mm-hmm. I was in my early teens. But when I finally made the choice to transition after six, seven, eight months of intensive gender based therapy, I came out and then I started amassing small groups of allies. And a lot of them were people that I, they were what I'd like to call my easy victories, right? I, I looked at the people that I knew that I, I thought were probably the easiest people. And then I, I approached them not with a story of of negative, like I'm, you know, 
that I was nervous and apprehensive, I, I looked at it very much as a celebration. I said, you know, I'm coming out and I'm going to share with you something that I've been hiding my whole life and I feel comfortable enough to share with you that I have this this whole side of me I haven't been able to share. And you're one of the first people I'm going to going to talk about that with. And um, in doing that, I picked up, you know, 10 or 20 quick allies that that I trusted that mm-hmm. were affir- that were affirmative. Um, mm-hmm. And then after another few months of that and talking to these people that I, I trusted and getting their advice and, and hearing from them, I, I went out and found a doctor who um, prescribed hormones. And, you know, I, I delved into that. And then I started talking more with different doctors and We've been working on kind of a medical transition kind of slowly as time goes on to see, you know, um, where, you know, where my dysphoria lies and how I alleviate that dysphoria and at what level um, I'm comfortable. Awesome. And so did you find it difficult to find somebody in your area that specialized in hormone replacement therapy? I almost found that it was, yeah, you know, it, it is hard because you Doctors are still not easy for trans people to talk to often. And a lot of us have mm-hmm. built up this narrative within us that we can't talk to anyone and we can never, we have to die with this secret. And we've got so much vested in this, this, this false narrative that society has asked us to portray and our, you know, we, that we're portraying for our families and our friends and our jobs that, you know, even doctors are hard to talk to and you don't, you don't know until you speak up. So I, my therapist recommends. Um, who I went to, and he treated on, he treated on informed consent. So I went in there, um, and yeah, yeah. So he did. You know, I signed all the paperwork. Now the problem with that approach was that I went into a clinic that didn't have a, a medical history with me. And I signed informed consent paperwork and started hormones, but really didn't have a, a, a plan for follow-up care or a strategy for follow-up care. So there's there's blood testing and, you know, monitoring that I think should have been done following that, that this doctor that was, you know, was going on informed consent was kind of saying, hey, you still have to figure this out. And mm-hmm. that's where I struggled was finding that next person to take to take this care and really treat me on a, kind of on a life cycle, if you will, mm-hmm. of starting to take the drugs and then testing every few months to make sure my levels were right and I wasn't overdoing it and I wasn't underdoing it. And I think that that's kind of where laws that are aimed at doctors uh, become detrimental when people start looking for care um, in places where uh, either they're traveling long distances for care or they're um, they're afraid to talk to their doctors. You're kind of taking that option away from people. So all these state bills that are kind of coming into place are really limiting people's ability to speak to their doctor about a challenge that they're having and limit their doctor's ability to treat them um, Mm -hmm. in a way that's safe and um, effective over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the other problem is too, is lack of training for healthcare providers, because what you're talking about, I see a lot and I get a lot of patients coming across state borders to come and see me. Because we do at our clinic offer primary care along with HRT. And I tell patients sometimes, you know, sometimes patients do come in and they, they just want me to take care of their hormones. And I'll, you know, I'll do whatever. But I do say with the disclaimer, like, it's really hard for me not to see the whole person. So I do plan on taking care of the whole person unless you tell me you have a primary care provider who is meeting your other medical needs. But I find that a lot of it has to do with lack of training with healthcare providers.
you know, some people who do come with established primary care providers will say, well, my doctor is great, but they just didn't feel comfortable prescribing my hormones. And so that's something that me and some other colleagues are trying to work really hard on to get more training programs implemented in universities and such where, you know, primary care providers feel more comfortable delivering HRT in that setting, which obviously would be epic for the trans community. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Denver, I will say, is is phenomenal. Um, you know, we do have a few primary care doctors. I found one. I went in. I got a physical. I didn't tell her I was trans um, originally. I, you know, I met up with her five years ago, right before I came out. Mm-hmm. And I knew that she had a reputation for treating trans patients. And she had spent time with another doctor who had um, kind of forged Denver's trans health care. Um, you know, so once I got away from that doctor that was just doing informed consent, I did find somebody who was very well recognized in the area as a trans medical expert. And then an- there's another doctor very close to my house that specializes in it. De- you know, Denver now also um, is doing um, more trans related surgeries at Denver Health. So, um, you know, we are a center that does a lot of procedures that you can't get around the country or are only offered in limited places. So Denver is becoming, having more resources and, and we have a, a good community forming those resources. But you're right. There were several times when I walked into an emergency room, you know, I happened to have a couple of emergency problems that were unrelated to me being trans. And the doctors that I had to come out to in those emergency tests ready for a trans patient um mm-hmm. i was lucky that my primary care when i came out she said well why didn't you tell me when you first came in two weeks ago and got a physical and i was like well i was trying to figure it out and see if i felt safe and right she said, you know half of my patients are trans i've been doing this for decades so that i mean that felt immediately she made me feel comfortable but the doctors in the emergency care it was the exact opposite they didn't properly gender me they um questioned you know my they didn't understand my use of hormones. Um, and these we're talking about completely unrelated challenges. Mm-hmm. They, the, the, the hospital refused to change my name, even though the billing, you know, on the billing, even though the billing came um, while I was in the name change process. And after it had legally changed in Colorado, they said, well, you know, they, they just ignored when I would send the, the paperwork in and say, hey, I'm not taking mail anymore. So change my name on my record, please. And they they wouldn't do it. You know, there were a lot of places where the, I think the emergency health care system and the emergent providers could have been better and they weren't. So Yeah, the system let you down. And I'm sorry for that. And it, yeah. happen- and it happens way too much. And so, you know, us allies are trying to work hard to expand knowledge <laughs> in that area. So hopefully we'll see some major changes in the coming years. Hey everyone, I have a quick favor to ask. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment and just clicking the subscribe button on whichever platform you use to listen to my show, that would be wonderful. Not only does it allow you to get notified every time I publish an episode, but it also helps with my ratings and reviews, which what that means in podcast world is that I'm able to climb up in the rating scale and reach other listeners. The whole reason why I started this show is to access people who needed the information. So please just go ahead and click subscribe, then we can all be happy and continue to listen Listen to this good quality free information. Thank you so much. When you originally reached out to me, we had been talking about facial feminization surgery. Uh, did you want to tell us a little bit more about your experience with that? Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I think everyone's different 
and how we find comfort in our souls is is different. Um, when I came out as trans, or when you know, when I let the world know I was trans and reached out, I knew that my my plan would go th- would involve facial feminization surgery. I wasn't comfortable with the way that my face had looked. So very early on in my transition, I had facial feminization procedures with. Dr. Um, Toby Meltzer in Scottsdale, Arizona, and it was again a very er- a procedure I had very early on. So mm-hmm. I have been through that. And so, for those who don't really aren't really familiar with facial feminization surgery, what kind of options did Dr. Meltzer offer you as far as uh, feminization options? Yeah, is, is so- it the same for everybody, or are there things that you can do that are different? No, you know, I got four opinions from four different doctors and, Mm -hmm. um, gosh, I probably got five opinions from four doctors, but, um, (laughs) I, um, you know, I, I, I met Dr. Meltzer at, um, Gender Odyssey in Seattle. Um, it was, it was a few months after I came out, I was still in a divorce process and he said there's, he was, he was open he was very, um, affirming for me as a person. He said, you don't need to do a lot. Honestly, the way you look, you need to grow your hair out. So he wasn't, he didn't even go in really selling a lot of surgery to me, but he said, in that quick meeting, we, you know, I had set up this 15 minute, he was seeing prospective patients at Gender Odyssey for 15 minutes at the, the convention center. He had mm-hmm. a meeting room set aside and he recommended, he does all sorts of different procedures, um, full body, you know, everywhere from your hairline down to, you know, as low as you want to go. Mm-hmm. And um, there are multiple procedures that he'll do, um, starting from, you know, hairline advancement to forehead contouring to kind of give you a more um, a more subtle, less masculine forehead and brow ridge, you know, cheek implants, rhinoplasty, jawline work. There's and Adam's apple shaving. Those are all, you know, procedures, I would say, neck and above that are facial feminization procedures. Mm -hmm. So I had some combination of those procedures. That's awesome. And what did you what was the recovery like from that? Yeah. So of those procedures I named, Dr. Meltzer and I decided to do, we did the, the, the forehead embossing or, or reduction. Uh, we did a mid-face lift, which kind of pulled my eyes um, slightly, made them a little bit more almond shape. Cheek implants, uh, rhinoplasty, and a chin reduction. Um, this, this, the recovery was difficult. It was definitely um, exciting because it was very much it was exciting because it, you know, it was this moment in my life that I had waited for. I'd watched Dr. Meltzer's work online and, and had seen his clinic and seen him and to, to get to Scottsdale and touch his building was so exciting for me. In addition to that, I came out that night on social media. You know, I had been, like I said, I had surrounded myself with like close family and friends and allies, but you know, I knew that rumors were starting to circulate about what was going on with me because I had kind of insulated myself behind this wall of allies. And, um, I came out at about midnight the day, you know, the day of surgery. So right. And then at five 30 in the morning, I reported for anesthesia. Um, yeah. So I woke up at five 30 and some of my East coast friends had seen the post on Facebook and were emailing me very supportive. You know, these were people I went to high school with people from upstate New York here. I was, you know, a couple of time zones away, but they at five 30 in the morning, but they were a few hours ahead and had time to absorb the news. And they were sending me these like, were behind you 100%. So it felt really good going into surgery. I had a lot of positive, um, positive wave to kind of ride in there. 
I woke up and I spent three days in the hospital, uh, my face fully wrapped in gauze and everything else, you know, my eyes nearly swollen mm-hmm. shut and lots of swelling and bruising. But then within, you know, 10 days or so, Dr. Meltzer released me from Arizona. It was about, I think, two or three days early. Wow. I got final clearance to leave. Yeah. And my parents decided that they didn't want me to come back to Denver. They wanted me to be kind of closer to family. So I went to San Diego and I spent um, another week or two with my stepmother and father. And, you know, surgery, you know, the immediate aftermath of the surgery, the stitches, you know, after over the course of a week or two kind of slowly came out and dissolved. And, you know, some of them had to be removed. And then as time went on, we, you know, that this, this, it was interesting to watch, you know, that the nose changed, the cheeks mm-hmm. changed and, and my hair grew longer. You know, I always mm-hmm. said I would transition as fast as my hair would grow in the facial feminization. You know, you, it's a big difference. Once the swelling goes away, once the bruising mm-hmm. goes away, you look and you're like, wow, it's different. But then it really does take, it's, it's incredible. It takes another year, a year and a half for everything to kind of mm-hmm. form into place in your body to kind of like, soften around some of the things that were changed mm-hmm. and uh, kind of grow into during, itself yeah and your brain to adjust to what happens there and really mm-hmm. you know over that time it was it was a very calming and um it just felt so good to watch day by day me see my myself and my features kind of change to match my inside so it was it was a physical healing intensive the first month or two mm-hmm. and then like from months three to like months 12 or 15 it was this like my brain and my body kind of slowly getting used to each other again and 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 recognizing each other as not being so polarized mm-hmm. would you describe that as maybe the feelings that people refer to as the gender euphoria I would say it was fairly euphoric. You know, gender dysphoria is kind of a sneaky little monster <laughs> to yeah. a lot of a lot of us. You know, like just when we think we've got it beat, um, mm-hmm. it's it it's it's still there. And then other times, like you said, the gender euphoria, you're like, wow, like I I did something. I I, I made a difference. And mm-hmm. you know, like I don't. I don't really relate to the term gender euphoria. I, I understand it, mm-hmm. and, and I, 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 I see people that that have it, and I, I celebrate that idea. For me, um, it's more this sense of of peace and comfort that came from the the hormones and and this 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 particular facial feminization and the, the kind of the, the empowerment that it gave my brain and my body to be similar. But I don't I don't know. Mm-hmm. euphoria i want to feel like it was this big celebration and to me it was it was more of a private um mm-hmm. a p- piece that i i got from it and maybe that's just my definition of euphoria needs to change <laughs> well i think you know from a, a lot of people they experience that differently you know uh, patients describe it to me as just that kind of the way that you described it was just the finally the feeling that everything was in sync you know and kind of their vision was finally coming true I think that um, you start to feel, yeah, a lot of the energy. I say that, you know, I, all the energy it takes to run and hide and be afraid of yourself is greater than the good that we, we create. And if we could take that energy that we, we spend in hiding and in fear of the world as trans people, we could put it to good use. What, what could we do with that energy? And um, the facial feminization surgery was certainly very key in taking some of that nervous energy I had in the world and 
quelling it so that I could take that energy and positively use it to something other than just being afraid and, and hating, you know, kind of the disconnect between my brain and my body. That's amazing. The only thing I would add about facial feminization is that you don't need facial feminization to be a woman. Um, you don't need a facial facial feminization or surgery to yeah I mean even if you've done nothing and you're 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 trans you are a woman you don't it does it's, you don't need it to validate yourself you don't need it to live up to the world's expectations or anything else it really is a matter of what makes you feel comfortable that's a choice that is your agency and no one else's so I'd say do it if it's something that makes you feel better and something that um, is available to you but under no circumstance should you feel pressured to do it or feel like if you don't have the resources or this or can't do it for several other reasons you're not any less of a woman and you're not any less valid it is really inspirational just to hear you talk about it because i i know that for a lot of people listening and for a lot of people that i encounter on a daily basis they're living in fear that are going to tune in and listen to you to speak about your transition and will finally have the courage and bravery to step out of their box and live their truth as well. So I really appreciate you sharing all those intimate details because I'm sure it's not easy to do. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I it's getting easier and it's gotten easier. When I first came out, I kind of viewed transition as like running from one closet that I was in, which was hiding in a non-authentic form into running across a room and getting into another closet where I was hiding, which would be like that, you know, like kind of that... I think detrimental idea that we should be passable and and nobody kind of wanted to be in that middle space where mm-hmm. you're um, where you're visible and you can be proud of yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, I found that, you know, between those two closets, you know, like really there's this big open room that's um, full of sunshine and light and we shouldn't have to be forced into a passing closet nor a hiding closet. Right. You know, we should be celebrated along the whole journey. Mm hmm. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's really important that you emphasize that about passing because so many people are hyper-focused on that. And a lot of it has to do with the transphobia that goes on, right? So if they're passing, then they don't have to get called out. And some people just want to live themselves and they don't necessarily want to have to explain themselves to everybody, which I totally understand. But to your point, there is, you know, that special place where you're just celebrating who you are while I'm sure it can be quite scary. Oh, right. And, and and you're absolutely right. Trans, transphobia dictates a lot of the, the, the this passing um, mm-hmm. in-between space. And, yeah. and, but the in-between space, if you can embrace who you are in, in there, um, you know, I think passing or or the idea of not not passing so much, but um, comfort anyways, uh, you'll be a lot more comfortable, I, I think, in that in-between space, even if that's not where where ultimately your transition is what you want or where you want it to take you. But I don't think that there's any shame in being a trans person. I, I feared myself. I feared the world before I came out. And again, it was always about how little time can I spend in that that bright, scary place in the middle of these two closets. And when I got into it, I said, you know, there's benefit. And I did see people that we're proud to stand in that space and in that light. And that's really where my seven summits goal came from was, Mm -hmm. you know, I should be, I shouldn't have to hide in the shadows. I shouldn't have to hide in the closet. I should go where there is no place to hide and where there are no shadows. And where is that? That's the highest point in every continent. That's, that's the point where there's, I have no shadows to hide behind, nor can I be relegated to them. So, 
Um, yeah, that's super cool. I just love that. So yeah. what is what summit is your next on your list? So next we are going to do Denali. Um, I am going out to uh, Denali for this year's Pride. So I'll be in, I'll be on the mountain starting in May, like late May, but we don't summit until uh, my summit days are early May or early June. Wow. So Denali is the next summit. And uh, we hope to, for my ascent to happen around June 6th, which is the first woman ascent was Barbara Washburn um, in the, f- the 40s, I believe. So wow. we, I, I'm hoping that um, around, uh, on the same day or if not around it, and also for the 51st anniversary of Pride, I'll be, um, I'll be up there um, wow, summiting. That's so cool. and I, yeah, and hopefully uh, trans people have a good victory to celebrate in from a Supreme Court decision around that same time. So, Absolutely. yeah, I'll be I'll be up there with so much going on in the world of, of trans rights and um, you know mountaineering history. It's really going to be a great time. Yeah, that will that is seriously amazing and so symbolic. And what a great way to tie all those things together. Yeah, yeah, it's it's exciting. I'm I'm happy every day I have a chance to shot like to, to climb and to be mm-hmm. seen and. Um, when things just come together and you get, you know, I can, I can live in a mountaineering team Mm -hmm. and feel good about myself and continue to um, explore the world. I I just know I did the right thing. And this Denali expedition, hopefully will just continue to reinforce that narrative. Yeah. So when do you plan on doing Mount Everest? Are you keeping that one for last or? I, yeah, we intended to keep it for last. Everest is typically climbed about the same time as Denali um, between, you know, the, the beginning of May or late April. And then, you know, Denali is typically not climbed in April, but Everest, a lot of expeditions start in late April and pretty much everything's wrapped up in the mountain in, by early June. And um, on Denali, everything's kind of wrapped up by July. Mm-hmm. So this year it wouldn't have been possible um, they say that Denali and Everest are about equally as difficult. You know, really? Everest with ox- is with oxygen and you have porters and it's, it's, there's more logistical support. And Denali, you're out there by yourself, uh, basically carrying everything you need and living on the mountain for, for two weeks without any sort of infrastructure, whereas Everest has base camp and lots of other resources right on the side of the mountain. So, yeah, Everest is definitely a goal. It's we are looking for a history of trans people that have been on the mountain. Edmund Hillary had somebody who came out as trans in the sixties after his expedition in the early fifties. So there, and there's another couple of stories about trans people that didn't quite make it to the summit, but there is actually a little bit of trans history on Everest and we're excited um, to actually get a known and visible trans person to the summit of that mountain because for all the summits we've seen on Everest um, there are far too few trans stories going on up there absolutely wow that is yeah. crazy cool I can't wait to follow your journey and to see you waving that flag at the top of each summit <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be yeah, amazing you know it was amazing on on Aconcagua when I thought about it it was the um, South American climbing season which was you know the winter in North America and on and in the Himalayas the only mountains that are taller than the mountain I was on in South America are in the Himalayas and very few winter ascents are attempted on those peaks so there I think when I was on on this day last year when I was on the top of Aconcagua there's a very good chance that that trans flag was the highest man-made piece of art 
you know, above the world. So the, the trans flag was probably the thing that was flying highest, the, the highest flying flag on the planet when I had it up there last year. So wow. the chance the chance to represent and to bring that flag up high and show those colors and show who I am is really something that um, I take a lot of pride in. Yeah. Oh, you give me goosebumps. That's so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm seriously so excited to follow your journey. Through all of this, you've used your organization, Transcending, to kind of help not only raise awareness for uh, trans athletes, but also help fund some of your uh, journeys. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly correct. You know, early on in the journey, I had this this mission to, to stay on the highest point and, and change the trans narrative, if you will, from, you know, kind of what I had seen when I was hiding so much, which was a lot of, you know, violence and suicide and underemployment and housing discrimination, all those things that we read about in the newspaper. And I really wanted to change it to something celebratory. So Mm -hmm. I I started this organization that was basically in place to celebrate positive trans narratives and support those stories in any way that we could logistically. I tried to talk to people in the outdoor industry and the entertainment industry and different industries that I thought would support the mission and had a voice to lend and an allyship to lend. And I didn't really get very far. So I was able to climb the first four mountains basically on the support of um, grassroots efforts and fundraising for this small nonprofit that I kind of opened up just to support these positive narratives. And um, we've, we climbed four mountains uh, in a year based on people believing that we could change the narrative. So now actually we're looking at some bigger sponsors have stepped in and, you know, I'm doing more photo shoots for brands and some bigger partners like REI and (coughs) Merrill in particular and outdoor research who have come in and said, you know what, the face of mountaineering can change. There is room for everybody, and and here you go. So yeah, we've we've made a lot of progress with it on the nonprofit side, and we've actually gone from basically climbing these mountains on ten and twenty and thirty dollars support to having some media and some sponsors looking at what we're doing. So we operate a website called Transcending. Um, it's just spelled. It's like transcending without the C. So tran t-r-a-n and then send in because we send it s-e-n-d-i-n-g uh dot org um or transcending seven dot org they're both of our websites and um we basically kind of keep the story running live all the time and kind of put any updates we have and you know we're searching for new athletes and basically everything is supported up until uh, continuing to be supported basically by people that believe and placing a trans person on the highest point proudly in each continent. So you can go there, you can donate there, and it all goes to the nonprofit. And um, it's also, at this point, we're looking at different athletes. We're looking at athletes, too, through hike in the United States and kind of, you know, to kind of prove the point that we're everywhere. And we're also seeking a uh, South Pole expedition um, for a trans person, again, seeking that to prove that we've just covered the world wide. So um, you can donate there and really that, that the money goes 100% to, to support positive trans narrative in outdoor sports. Well, that's awesome. And I'm really excited for listeners to be able to follow your journey and uh, hopefully donate to the cause, but also give inspiration for other people who are athletes and might be, you know, kind of afraid to come out and 
also have the same concerns that you had about having to put that aside. So what, where's the best place for them to actually watch your journey? Do you have an Instagram handle? Will you be like posting videos or anything? Yeah, yeah. As time goes on, more content is being delivered. Um, so we are on transcending. Uh, we try to post frequently again with, I think, the mainstream media covering yeah. uh, more of the negative narrative. We've taken an approach to speak more positively. So you can find us on transcending. Again, it's transcending without the C, T R A N S I N D I N G S E N. D-I-N-G, yep. D-I-N-G, <laughs> Transcending 7. So we're at Transcending 7. And, um, you know, that's maintained by the or, uh, the Transcending Organization, which I I'm, um, I don't, I'm not on the board of, but um, our communications manager, who's my partner, um, does all the posting there. And we're definitely looking for stories to feature. So if anybody wants to be featured on our website and kind of be part of this growing energy of wow. um, creating pride in athletics, please send us a message and, and, and a picture or tag transcending, hashtag transcending without the seven. And we'll, we could, we might find your, we'll probably find your story and maybe um, highlight it on our page. That's I, awesome. as an athlete, yeah. So I, I, as an athlete can be found at Aaron sends seven, E R I N sends seven. Um, because I'm sending the seven summits and awesome. um, yeah. So I don't post nearly as much, you know, training and talking with community members and advocating and, and really, you know, working full time and it's just everything right. that I'm doing kind of keeps me from posting too much, but I have a little bit more freedom as to what I can say versus what the organization can do and say. And um, I do post on my, my account quite a bit. So, you know, when I can, so um, yeah, we put up videos every now and again and we put up, um, I, I try to put some stuff on YouTube again, Aaron sends seven is where you'll find me, but um, making sure that, you know, my, my journey is visible on our webpage. We've got lots of stories linked to media who's followed my story or, you know, who've written about me or, or places where I've done interviews and talked about my mission. So you can definitely, you know, go onto my website and click on the, in the media page and you can see everything from self magazine asking me for power bar advice on how to power a, uh, a big hike to, <laughs> to awesome. me, me talking about what it was like for me to come out to my family and work through the, the challenges that, and successes that come with, you know, coming out to your family and actually finding support rather than um, what a lot of us expect, which is not, you know, right. negativity, sh- yeah. sh- negativity or shunning or something else. Yeah. So you can hear all of that. I, I have been privileged, I think. But in in that part of my transition, I have found a lot of support. But um, I think a lot of other people will, too. I, I, I hate to say that I had this big story built up, but I did. And I, I, I kind of had written off so many of my family and friends. And when I came right. out, they said, I said, why would you fear me? I mean, you know that I'm a good person and you know that, um, you know, I support you and I still do. But the fact that you thought that I would, that I, w- I would be this person that would, would let you go because you came out, that, mm-hmm. that's, you know, that negatively impact, like, why did you think that about me? So, you know, it's amazing to have these friends that, um, and family that a support me, but then I have to go back and think to the days when I said, I didn't think that they would. And what did, what did that mean? So anyways, I've I've been privileged to have a lot of great support and um, I have lost a few friends, but um, I, you know, again, big part of my story is that it's, it's been positive and I want to keep it positive. 
Yeah. Well, good for you. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're so busy with your training and your working and everything that you have going on. So it really means a lot for you to come on and, you know, tell your story so that listeners can be inspired by it too, but also, you know, take the time to donate to your cause. So I really appreciate it. Thanks again for tuning in. I really hope you enjoyed listening to Erin Parisi as much as I did. Her story is just absolutely incredible. The mountains that she has climbed, not only literally, but figuratively, is amazing. And she's an inspiration for a lot of people. If you have any questions, you can contact Erin Parisi through her listed contact information. Or you can contact me at erin at exclusivelyinclusivepodcast.com. All right, everybody. Stay fierce and live your truth.